Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 32, the second part on Sodom and Gomorrah. In the last episode, since it was released the week of Christmas 2016, I opted to cover the three wise men, or magi, found in Matthew. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week is the last episode to be released in 2016, and I'm picking up where I left off two episodes ago with Sodom and Gomorrah, working through the archaeological history of the two cities, as well as their mention elsewhere in the Bible and from other sources. So let's get started. Archaeologist Walter E. Rast of Valparaiso University and Thomas Schwab of Indiana University in Pennsylvania in 1973, proposed potential sites for Sodom and Gomorrah. The first such site was that of Babe el Dre. This city was originally excavated in 1965 by archaeologist Paul Lapp, a graduate of Harvard and a professor at the American School of Oriental Research in Jerusalem. His work was finished by Raston Schwab following Lapp's death. Babe el Dre is the site of an early Bronze Age city located near the Dead Sea on the south bank of a stream known as the Wadai Karak. While Lapp, Rast, and Schwab argue that this was the site of Sodom, other archaeologists disagree. Instead, archaeological evidence suggests that the site was abandoned by its inhabitants, but also experienced some sort of fire event. Another possible reason this site may not be the biblical Sodom is because the village was too small, somewhere around 10 acres, compared to what has been described in the Old Testament. In addition, the city was not in the designated geographical area listed in Genesis 13. Finally, it was not inhabited in the time period when the events are thought to have occurred according to the biblical timeline. Babe el Dre was destroyed in the early Bronze Age, while most biblical scholars believe that Abraham lived in the Middle Bronze period, between 2166 and 1550 BC. Supporters of the theory have argued that a close examination of the biblical account does allow the city to be this far south. They also argued that the set time frame for its destruction is not necessarily reliable. Proponents of the so-called Southern Sodom theory have offered various hypotheses to explain the causes of its abandonment. Rass suggested an earthquake or an external attack. Also, butamen and petroleum deposits have been found in the area, and these contain sulfur and natural gas. Remember from the flood episodes that butamen is essentially what we call asphalt. One theory suggests that a pocket of natural gas led to the incineration of the city. However, archaeologists who worked at the site found no evidence of a conflagration or indeed any sort of catastrophe to explain the sudden desertion of its inhabitants. As for the pocket of natural gas, similar to the New Madrid earthquakes from the last Sodom and Gomorrah episode, such an event has occurred in very recent memory. In 1986, in the African country of Cameroon, at what is known as Lake Nios, a bubble of carbon dioxide suddenly rose from the lake. On August 21, 1986, a limnic eruption occurred at the lake, triggering the sudden release of between 100,000 and 1.6 million tons of CO2. This cloud rose at nearly 62 miles an hour, or for those of you on the metric system, 100 kilometers per hour. The gas cloud, being heavier than air and behaving like an invisible liquid, 
spilled over in the northern lip of the lake into a valley running roughly east to west from the village of Cha to the village of Saboom. Then, the cloud rushed down two valleys branching off to the north, displacing all of the air and suffocating 1,746 people, mostly rural villagers, within 16 miles or 25 kilometers of the lake. It also killed about 3,500 head of livestock. To an archaeologist investigating the ruins of the village some thousands of years later, it may look like it was suddenly abandoned. And, in a way, it was. Back to the infamous Twin Cities. Other possible sites for Sodom include Numera, Al-Safi, Faifa, and Kanazur, all of which were visited by Shab and Rest. Their early conclusions were that Bab al-Durayh and Numeria were both destroyed at approximately the same time, sometime between 2350 and 2067 BC. These sites are near the Dead Sea and exhibit evidence of burning and traces of sulfur. Unlike the neighboring ruins of Numeri, Bab al-Duri does not appear to have been destroyed by a significant fire. However, according to Shab, who dug at Bab al-Duri, Numeria was destroyed around 2600 BC, while Bab al-Duri was destroyed at a different time, sometime between 2350 and 2067 BC, meaning that the former was destroyed at least 250 years before the latter. But it is not lost on me that the destruction of Bab al-Duri can only be narrowed to a 300-year range. Archaeological finds from Bab al-Duri are currently displayed in the Karak Archaeological Museum and the Imam Citadel Museum, both in Jordan, as well as at the British Museum. Another candidate for Sodom is the Tel El Hammam dig site. Excavations began at this site in 2006 under the direction of Professor Stephen Collins of Trinity Southwestern College in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Tal El Hammam is located in the southern Jordan River Valley, about 9 miles or 14 kilometers northeast of the Dead Sea. Superficially, the site fits the biblical description of the area around Sodom. The excavation is a joint effort between Trinity Southwest University and the Department of Antiquities of the Kingdom of Jordan. At the location, the primary site is about 90 acres or just over a third of a square kilometer. The settlement surrounding the area is slightly larger. Now to us, with our modern megacities, this may not sound very large, but this size makes Tel al-Hammam one of the largest Middle Bronze Age sites discovered so far in Jordan. Findings at the site seem to indicate that it was occupied from the Chalcolithic period on up to the Iron Age. But there also seem to be some time gaps. So far, no artifacts have been discovered from the Late Bronze Age. The researchers claim to have discovered a layer of ash that also contains human bone fragments, along with glazed artifacts such as pottery and rocks. They theorize that these items indicate a meteor airburst and sudden end to the civilization in the area. Sound familiar? Also, desert glass has reportedly been found among the glazed pottery shards. To the unfamiliar, desert glass is produced when extremely high temperatures fuse sand into glass. These temperatures are not in the natural phenomenon that occur in the area more frequently, such as oil fires, gas fires, or siege fires. But siege fires, of course, are not a natural phenomenon, but man-made. 
but you get my point. The formation of desert glass requires extremely high temperatures. Small amounts can be formed naturally with lightning strikes and larger amounts from meteor impacts and aerial bursts. Also, a nuclear explosion, such as was conducted in the southwestern U.S. in the middle 20th century, can form the material. It is evident that the area around Tel Hamam was not occupied for several centuries after the formation of this glass in the older artifacts. Curiously, artifacts have also been found that attest to Greek, Eastern Roman, and Byzantine occupation on the site. However, Professor Eugene H. Merrill, formerly of the Dallas Theological Seminary, believes that the identification of Tel al-Hammam with Sodom would require an unacceptable restructuring of the biblical chronology. Not to forget, the 1st century AD Jewish historian Josephus identifies the Dead Sea in geographic proximity to the ancient biblical city of Sodom. In his writings, he refers to the body of water by its Greek name, Asphaltitis, which maybe, obviously, is a name that does not refer to its lack of life or salinity, but instead to the asphalt, a.k.a. butamen, which spews forth. Sodom and Gomorrah had one other historical reference in Genesis. In chapters 13 and 14 resides a curious passage that describes a little of the pre-destruction history of Sodom and Gomorrah. The passage is commonly referred to as the Battle of Siddim, Sodom and Gomorrah's political state is described after Lot splits from Abram, encamped in Sodom's territory. At this time, quoting the New Revised Standard Version, The people of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. At the time, according to Genesis, Sodom was ruled by King Bera, while Gomorrah was ruled by King Bersha. Their kingship, it seems, was not completely independent, though because all of the plains surrounding the Jordan River was under Elamite rule for 12 years. At the time, the kingdom of Elam was ruled by King Shedalomer. During the 13th year of subservience to Elam, the five kings of the River Jordan Plain allied to rebel against Elamite rule. Remember a few weeks ago when I covered Canaan and I discussed the forming of alliances in an attempt to overthrow rulers? Well, this was one of those alliances. These kings included those of Sodom and Gomorrah as well as their neighbors. Specifically, King Shinab of Adam, King Shemabur of Zeboam, and the unnamed king of Bela, a city that would later be called Zor. Of course, King Shedalomer of Lam did not take this rebellion lightly. He gathered additional forces from Shinar, Elisar, and Giom to suppress this rebellion. They waged war in the Valley of Siddam in the 14th year. The battle was especially brutal, with the rebellious cities suffering heavy losses, with some soldiers even becoming trapped in the asphalt pits. All of this led to the defeat of the rebellion. In this defeat, Sodom and Gomorrah were looted and prisoners were taken, which may have included enslavement. In all of this, Lot, too, was taken prisoner. This, though, changed when mighty Uncle Abram gathered an elite force that routed King Shedalomer's forces at Hobah, north of Damascus. The actual location of this city and battle have been lost in history. Abram's victory also liberated the cities of the Jordan Plain from Alam. Of course, Sodom and Gomorrah were referred to elsewhere in both the Old and New Testaments. 
but these were generally not historical and used mostly as a tool of comparison. For example, Moses referred to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Deuteronomy 29 when stating that a similar destruction may come to the wicked. Not to be forgotten, but the prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Amos compared their contemporaries to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. The New Testament also mentions the Twin Cities a few times, especially in Matthew and Luke, both in their chapters 10, where Jesus states that certain cities were worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Similar references can be found in Romans, 2 Peter, Jude, and the Revelation. To me, the takeaway from this is, don't put yourself in a position where a prophet compares you and your lot to those cities. Like many of the other Old Testament stories I've covered to date, Sodom and Gomorrah can also be found in deuterocanonical sources. The Book of Wisdom in chapter 10 refers to the five cities, and chapter 19 compares the enslaving Egyptians to the men of Sodom. The Wisdom of Sirach in chapter 16 refers to Sodom. Similar references are made in 3rd Maccabees and three different passages in 2nd Esdras. Traditional Jewish scriptures and commentary present Sodom in a slightly different light. Some researchers point out that classical Jewish texts emphasize the cruelty and lack of hospitality of the inhabitants of Sodom to the stranger. Now, there is the potential from these researchers to attempt to spin the discussion, though. If you want more detail on their spinning of the discussion, it's readily available online. Overall, their view is that the people of Sodom were also as guilty of many other significant sins as the ones commonly believed. Rabbinic writings affirm that the Sodomites were guilty of economic crimes, blasphemy, and murder. One of the more curious ways was to give money or even gold ingots to beggars after inscribing the giver's name on them and then subsequently refusing to sell the beggars food in exchange for the gold. The unfortunate stranger would end up starving and after his death, the people who gave him the money would reclaim it. Which to me really seems like an easy way to lose your gold. Couldn't the beggar just sell the gold at a discount and then the buyer have it melted down? But then again, I'm looking at it through my modern lens. John D. Levison, a professor at the Harvard Divinity School, views a rabbinic tradition described in the Mishnah as postulating that the sin of Sodom was a violation of conventional hospitality in addition to other deplorable conduct. Describing Sodom's lack of generosity with the saying, What is mine is mine, and what is yours is yours. Since I haven't mentioned it before, it's worth noting here what the Mishnah is. It's the first major written summary of the Jewish oral traditions known as the Oral Torah. It is also the first major work of rabbinic literature and was edited by Judah the Prince at the beginning of the 3rd century AD, in a time when, according to the Talmud, the persecution of the Jews and the passage of time raised the possibility that the details of the oral traditions of the Pharisees from the Second Temple period would be forgotten. The majority of the Mishnah is written in Mishianic Hebrew, but other passages are in Aramaic. Now back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Finally, Islam makes mention of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Quran contains 12 references to what it calls the people of Lut, which is thought to be the biblical Lot, but also specifically refer to the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
and their destruction by God is associated explicitly with their sinful practices. When Lot insisted that they abandon their transgression against God, they threatened him with dire consequences. Lot only prayed to God to be saved from sinning as they did. Then, the archangel Gabriel met Lot and said that he must leave the city quickly, as God had given this command to Lot to save his life. In the Quran, it was written that Lot's wife stayed behind because she had sinned. Ultimately, she met her fate in the disaster, and that only Lot and the rest of his family were saved during the destruction of their city. Interestingly, the Quran does not specifically refer to the cities by the names Sodom and Gomorrah. Islamic commentary by Ishmael ibn Kathir, a 14th century AD Sunni scholar, goes into further detail concerning the story. Lot's wife, and these are Kathir's own words, was a bad old woman. She stayed behind and was destroyed with whoever else was left. This is similar to what Allah says about them where Allah commanded him to take his family at night, except for his wife, and not to turn around when they heard the seha, meaning an awful cry, as it came upon his people. So they patiently obeyed the command of Allah and persevered, and Allah sent upon the people a punishment which struck them all, and rained upon them stones of baked clay piled up. End quote. As for the area today, Well, it is home to a company known as the Dead Sea Works, a large operation for the extraction of Dead Sea minerals, including sulfur products. Also nearby is Mount Sodom, which is mainly a huge deposit of salt and includes a natural pillar aptly named Lot's Wife. The picture of this pillar is coming. You should know where to look. And that is Sodom and Gomorrah. Next week, I'll quickly cover the history of Zor, a.k.a. Bella, and also dive into the geography of both the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Also go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Thanks for listening, have a great week, and a joyful new year.